0: The soil is prepared, drilling time. Into the hopper of this drill goes about one bushel of seed for every acre of ground.
1: Farm Commons.
2: This is the Farm Commons podcast and this episode is getting to work part one. We're beginning a two-part podcast on employment law on your farm. Employment law is a huge subject. We'll only be covering part of it, even with two episodes. Visit farmcommons.org to learn a whole lot more. You've started your farm enterprise. Maybe you've had it for a while and are only starting to expand. Maybe you've experienced rapid growth or realized from the get-go that it's too big for just you or you and a partner. Hiring a farm employee is an exciting moment. It means the farm is getting large, stable enough to take on additional help. It's also kind of scary. It means you have obligations to the people working for you and to the state and federal government. Farmers ask us tons of questions about what happens when you get people to work on your farm. Is it hard? Easy? You have to pay workers mostly, right? But don't you also have to pay taxes and insurance premiums and stuff? What things do you have to pay to whom and when? Employment law is big and complicated. And that's not always very much fun for a farmer who needs help on their farm. Most employment statutes and regulations are non-negotiable. Unlike other areas of law like contract and sales law or business formation, the laws seem really strict and not always connected to what farmers or farm workers feel that they need. And the statutes can be enforced even over a worker's objections, that is, even if the worker doesn't feel that they want to be protected under those particular laws. Of course, everyone shares the same goals. Everyone wants a good working environment for employees and employers. But we're not going to sugarcoat it. There are hoops that you need to jump through if you want to avoid liability and avoid risk. Here's what Rachel Armstrong has to say about the world of farm employment law. Rachel's the Executive Director of Farm Commons.
1: I'm Rachel Armstrong, and I'm the Founder and Executive Director of Farm Commons. Uh, We built this organization to cultivate a community of support and resources for sustainable farmers. We do that because we really believe that strong, resilient, sustainable farm businesses are built on a solid legal foundation. I think employment law can be very difficult for farmers to work with because it's unlike a lot of other areas of law, and it's unlike a lot of other business practices that farmers rely on on a day-to-day basis. Farmers are generally good negotiators. They work out agreements that work for them and, and their buyers, their customers their landlords their suppliers it has to be an informal relationship based process to uh, to get things done on the farm that is that's great that's usually not a legal problem in and of itself but employment law is one of those areas that's particularly inflexible the opportunity to come to a mutually beneficial agreement is pretty pretty limited in employment law for example, if the law says you have to provide workers' compensation, or workers' compensation insurance, or the law says you now owe payroll taxes,
3: or you must participate in the unemployment insurance
1: system, then that's the rule. And that applies whether the individual in question, whether the worker actually wants workers' compensation or intends to draw on the unemployment insurance Program so mutual agreements that make everybody happy are not the rule when it comes to employment law. So it's it's less of a uh, less of a specific legal issue that farmers are calling us with, but a a misplaced sense perhaps of what is really possible in employment law. And and that again is very understandable as well because many of the other legal areas that farmers are accustomed to working within offer much greater flexibility than than this area of law.
2: And to add to the confusion, not all employment that takes place on a farm is even considered farm employment law.
1: The world would be really simple and really wonderful if everything that happened on a farm fell under farm employment law. But that, not even that is possible. Uh, Things that happen on a farm can still be non-farm issues, non-farm activities. And so non-farm employment law rules apply. So here you have some innocent farmer who's just trying to you know, get a job done, um, and they're crisscrossing between two bodies of law, farm employment law and non-employment law, and they need to navigate these, and that applies to workers' compensation, unemployment insurance, payroll tax, minimum wage, so the, the opportunity for confusion is, is tremendous. We, we get lots of calls on all aspects of these
2: issues. So we're going to unpack a few of these concepts, not all of them, over the next two episodes. In this first episode, that will include knowing the difference between employees and independent contractors, and spending some time talking about paperwork and taxation, the kinds of taxes you need to pay if you hire people to work on your farm. In our next episode, we'll cover interns and volunteers and workers' compensation. We'll even mention the few issues we haven't had a lot of time to discuss and point you in directions to find more resources. What we learn at the end of the day, no matter what subject we're exploring, is that it's all about risk management. Manage the risk that your employment situation won't work out. Manage the risks of people getting injured on the job. Expect and cater to the best, but be prepared for the less than best. The way we work on our farms can be a lot different than the way people work off the farm. We don't punch a clock. We're always on call. Our schedule is sometimes set very rigidly and other times it's uncertain. So... The way people work for and with us on our farm is also different, and while our legal system sometimes recognizes that difference, it can be hard to fit farm workers into non-farm legal categories.
1: So, what do we mean when we say farm employment law? What are what are those rules? What uh, what should people know? Well, generally, the first thing we want to we want to find out for individual farmers is what kind of worker that they have. Many farms are using interns and apprentices, and there's a particular legal definition of who is an intern and an apprentice, so we have to look at that. Other folks are using independent contractors, but again, there is a specific set of criteria that determine whether or not you actually have an independent contractor.
2: One of the most important designations that you can make about the people working on your farm is whether they're employees or independent contractors. An employee is assumed to be working under your control. An independent contractor is assumed to be working to help you achieve a particular goal under the structure of an agreement that you make with them. This distinction is important for a couple of reasons. First, pretty much anyone working for you is going to be one or the other, an employee or an independent contractor. There are some exceptions for interns, volunteers, and apprentices. We'll talk about those in the next episode. Secondly, The distinction's important because if you misclassify a worker, that could cause you some problems. The government or courts can hold you responsible for things like back wages back taxes. They could even charge you penalties or fines. You may have heard a lot about this distinction between employee and independent contractor, and you can guess why businesses might want to designate their workers as independent and as contractors. Lots of things seem easier that way, right? Tax burdens, being able to hire and fire workers, insurance issues, leaving it up to them to deal with that. Seems like it's a lot easier for them to be contractors.
0: I'm paying overtime.
2: That's my friend Chris. He's an attorney in Chicago.
0: My name is Chris Langone and I'm the managing partner at uh, Langone Baxen and Lavery. We have offices in Chicago and New York and we're a general practice uh, consumer and plaintiff side uh, firm that uh, represents people in conjunction with uh, all kinds of uh, cases, employment, law, civil rights, and uh, criminal defense as well as uh, personal injury and consumer protection.
2: Both states and the federal government use factor tests in determining whether a worker is an employee or an independent contractor. Those tests are sometimes divided into three categories.
0: Think of them in terms of kind of three large areas, which is, you know, behavioral factors, uh, financial factors, and then the the type of relationship in terms of things like continuity and what the
2: documents say and, and stuff like that. So control over behavior, control over finances and equipment and what the relationship between the worker and the employer actually is. First, how much control does the employer have over how the worker behaves?
0: What you can or can't do uh, in the workplace or, or working for the employer. case out of the Southern District of New York involving cabaret uh, lounge dancers. The court found that they were uh, employees, not independent contractors, and pointed to some Behavioral factors like whether they could chew gum or whether they could have their cell phones on the dance floor or whether they could carry their purse. Mm-hmm. Having a bad or a good attitude. If you have to wear particular uniforms or you have to dress a certain way, then you're more likely to be seen uh, as an employee. It really, you know, The behavioral factors come down to your, your freedom to act you know, however, however you want to act. Right? Mm-hmm. A plumber can show up at your house and wearing whatever he or she wants to wear.
2: So let's imagine that you hire two people to do work on your farm. Maria is an electrician. You want to have Maria make sure that your electrical systems on the farm are maintained and functional. Your automatic chicken coop doors and lights. Maybe you've got a self-contained generator that you use. You've got outlets in your barn. Maria can come and do this on her schedule. You have to make an appointment with Maria, or wait for her to tell you when she can come do your electrical maintenance. And you don't care what Maria wears or how she does the job, you just want it done. But you also want your irrigation systems maintained, and in that instance, you hire Ted. And actually... Ted, you've hired to do a number of other things on the farm too. He handles compost, he feeds the animals. You have him on the farm 20 hours a week, regular time, based on your schedule. You closely supervise the tasks that he does. Based on behavioral factors, Maria is probably an independent contractor. Ted, well, he's probably your employee. So then, as Chris says, there are also the financial factors.
0: You know, who purchases the tools Trade, who supplies uh, necessary equipment, you know what's being done in terms of obviously withholding, uh, who pays certain expenses of of the relationship, profit and loss. You know, if, if independent contractors obviously that make a profit get to keep the profit, they don't have to worry about sharing it with the employer. But by the same token, they also uh, bear the losses. They they buy their own equipment and you know bring their own tools to bear.
2: This is where providing equipment, for example, becomes important. Does Maria, the electrician, have her own tools? Well, yeah. Chances are you don't have electrician's tools. She's a licensed electrician, and she's got that equipment. Finances are important, too. At the end of the year, Maria files her own business taxes. She takes the money you pay her, and that counts as her business gain. She deducts her expenses for equipment and upkeep, uh, expenses to drive out to your farm. That's her business expenses. Ted, on the other hand, he uses your equipment, and he doesn't do any of that financial stuff. He counts the money that you pay him as income. You withhold his federal and state taxes. You pay other taxes, unemployment insurance, workers' comp for Ted. Again, it looks like Maria is an independent contractor, and Ted is your employee. Equipment isn't decisive, though. As we'll ultimately see, behavior and relationships tend to trump equipment, and sometimes even finances. To use an off-farm example, consider Uber drivers.
0: Obviously, kind of the hot cases right now uh, that are going on throughout the country are are the Uber driver cases. Those cases are, you know, some courts are rejecting the claims that Uber drivers are employees, and other courts are being more, more sympathetic.
2: Now, the fact that the drivers provide their own cars and maintain their own insurance points to those drivers as being independent contractors. But what about the new Uber premium services like Uber Black, where drivers have to have certain kinds of cars or provide things like water and mints and really appear and behave like upscale drivers? Obviously, equipment isn't everything. I used to deliver pizzas, I used my own car. But I was an employee. It seems like with all these factors, it might be hard to determine whether someone is an employee or an independent contractor.
3: It's not too hard for the IRS to prove that somebody's an employee, uh,
2: magically enough. That's Mike Duff. Michael Duff. He's one of my former law professors, and he's a little sarcastic sometimes. And he specializes in labor and employment law at the University of Wyoming College of Law. Go pokes.
3: I have a uh, blog, the Workers' Compensation Law Professors blog, that is part of the uh, Law Professors blog network. And uh, I've also been doing a podcast for uh, paydayreport.com uh, that is covering essentially labor activities in the South.
2: So Professor Duff is down with this podcasting stuff. And he agreed to talk to me about employees and independent contractors. And what he had to say was, watch out. The government wants most workers to be classified as employees. So remember I said businesses, including farmers, have reasons for wanting to classify their workers as independent contractors? Well, the government has reasons for wanting to do the opposite. This has been true, Professor Duff says, ever since the government began making those kinds of classifications
3: factor test came into being and the whole independent contractor versus employee question. You have to really look at the origin of master-servant law and, uh, and the question when the master was liable for the acts of the servant. And you're, and you're really going back to the, uh, the mid to late part of the 19th century.
2: So if the person doing a job for you was not under your control, then you wouldn't be responsible for their actions.
3: Send somebody down the street to pick a, uh, a tool up for me at the hardware store, and on their way to the hardware store, uh, they get into an automobile accident, or they, or after they've gotten the tool, they, uh, you know, they assault somebody. You can imagine all kinds of crazy scenarios. Uh, the judges didn't want it to be too easy to impute the the, uh, the wrongdoing or the liability of that person back to the principal, the master who sent the person
2: out. But as the number of laws designed to protect workers increased, and as the government became more committed to doing things like fighting discrimination and collecting taxes, it wanted to include more and more workers in the designation of employee.
3: We don't want somebody to be too easily excluded from coverage by Title VII because then they don't enjoy protections against racial discrimination, and we think racial discrimination uh, is a bad idea, which is why we passed the, uh, the statute. So, so the idea of a lot of these statutes is include, include, include.
2: And it's when we introduce the category of relationships in the factor test that we really see how things like control, control, or lack of control the employer has over the worker really make a difference. Professor Duff says that if you want to be sure your worker is an independent contractor, you need to not be in control at all. Think of your contractor as someone who's building your house, and you're exercising no control over that process. You might not even be there. What we look at is whether
3: it's really the putative employer who is running the show in the workplace. I don't care what time you you show up. To work, what time you leave? I'm not going to get you any materials. I'm not going to get you any nails. I'm, I'm not involved. I am. All I'm having you do is independently go out and do this job for me. And at the end, I'm going to give you a a certain sum of money. Uh, and uh, beyond that, I have no control. Now, now it may be that if if you know if I happen to drive by and I really hate the way that you're building the house, I could fire you, right? I could I could put you off the job. But other than that. Uh, I'm not in control at all
2: as I said, I used to be a pizza delivery driver. I used my own car, but clearly I knew I was an employee in addition to not setting my hours there was also another important factor again a relationship factor
0: using your example of being a, a pizza delivery driver you know kind of goes into that third element which is which is the type of relationship and mm-hmm. uh, how integrated the services are um, with Uh, the the underlying business, you know, who's been able to provide instructions, uh, who has the right to terminate or not terminate the relationship, um, you know, the power to discharge, uh, those kinds of things. Um, And I assume that you were not allowed to deliver pizza for competitors. You know, independent contractor accountants can can do the accounting for multiple businesses, whereas an in-house accountant is beholden to the, you know, and has duties to to the company that they work for. So even though they're both doing the work of accounting, depending on the context of the relationship, one may be an independent contractor and one may be an
2: employee. In other words, if Maria, your electrician, can do the same electrical work on other farms, she's likely an independent contractor. And that ends up being a key factor in determining whether a worker is an employee or an independent contractor. Again, it's all about your actions in relationship with each other. How does the worker act in relation to you and the job? How do you act towards the worker? And are you letting them do the job? As our executive director, Rachel Armstrong, likes to say, if it looks like a duck and talks like a duck, it's a duck. So Idaho, for example, uses a right-to-control test. Does the worker control when and how the work gets done? Can the worker earn profit or suffer loss independently? Does the worker provide the major equipment? And is the worker hired project by project or task by task rather than being permanently hired for multiple tasks? The U.S. Department of Labor's economic realities test requires that the worker isn't performing core tasks. If all this feels a little overwhelming, you're not alone. That's why at Farm Commons we have resources to help you, and we'll talk about more of those in a few minutes. But I want to mention one now. We recommend that you set 20 minutes aside to work through a flowchart and guide provided in one of our printed resources, Classifying Workers on Farms, Employees versus Interns, Volunteers, and Independent Contractors. And in the second of our two employment law podcasts, we'll talk about the distinction between interns, volunteers, and employees. Now I need to talk about two of my least favorite subjects, taxes and paperwork. I want to talk about nine things that you need to do to prepare and to be ready for nine tasks uh, to keep in mind when you start employing people on your farm. Number one is prepare early prepare before your workers arrive on the farm. So farm owners should start preparing well before the new employee begins their first day of work. As a ballpark estimate, a month might be enough time to open up the necessary accounts and establish procedures to have taxes, withholding, insurance, other types of things ready and in place when your worker begins to work. Second, you need to verify workers' eligibility to work. You can only hire people who are eligible to work in the United States. So if you aren't using guest workers, that means that you have to complete I-9 forms for your workers. And these are available from the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services. You fill in the documentation required. You don't send it in. You keep the forms on file. So if you ever get inspected, those forms need to be available for examination. And third, set up your federal withholding program. So like other businesses, farms are required to withhold a percentage of an employee's wages and remit the withheld portion to the IRS. The formula for that as of now is, uh, if you're a farmer, is if you pay more than uh, $2,500 total in the year for all of your workers or $150 a year or more to one individual, then you have to pay taxes and so to begin that withholding process the farm has a test have completed irs form w-4s from the worker you know what a w-4 form looks like you don't send it in again you keep it in your files and the worker lists the number of exemptions to use and you take that you take that form and those exemptions and you use the irs tax table to determine how much to withhold per paycheck when to pay etc the irs uses an, uh, uses an online system to do this and it's called the electronic federal tax payment system or eftps deposits have to be made, made electronically you have to register with that system online it might take you a few days to do that uh, and it takes a few days for them to process your account and give you the passwords that you'll need for that that's how you begin the process of having a federal withholding program and of course making sure that you pay those taxes on time number four take care of social security and medicare so most farms are required to withhold social security and medicare tax from the workers paycheck and the same rules apply as for federal income tax the $2,500 $2,500 a year for total workers or $150 or more for a single worker. And currently, 6.2% of wages are withheld for Social Security, 1.45% for Medicare. Those might change over time. Of course, you have to keep up with that information. And the same electronic system is used to pay federal income tax as is used for Social Security and the Medicare tax payments. And number five. Pay unemployment tax so unemployment tax unlike these other taxes is not deducted from your workers wages you pay the federal unemployment tax yourself Uh, This tax pays for the compensation of individuals who become unemployed. Most employers are required to pay unemployment tax immediately, but farms are exempt until the operation reaches a certain size, and there's more information about how that tax is determined. Uh, That information is available uh, in our tax and paperwork checklists and other materials at farmcommons.org. Number six, set up your state withholding program. Yeah, I know, another whole tax regime. And depending on whether your state taxes individual income or, and also on their scheme for determining unemployment taxes, you're going to need to set up another system of withholding and payments. That means opening a withholding tax account with your state's Department of Revenue. Typically, you can do that online or over the phone or even through paper application. And you'll likely have a tax ID number to help manage your account. Uh, And then the workers complete the W-4, and then it becomes very much like the federal withholding system, only it's for states, and your states might have particular rules, particular procedures to do that. As for state unemployment taxes, whether you pay them, how much you have to pay, that all depends on how many workers you're employing, for how long, and also in what state. And your individual state will have instructions. And Farm Commons also has guides on our specific website to many states' uh, various uh, taxing regulations. And so you want to check and see if your state is there on the farmcommons.org resources website. Number eight, get workers' compensation. We're going to talk about this uh, in the next episode. You're likely going to need to carry workers' compensation and trust us. It's a good idea. We'll find out more, again, on the next episode. There are ways that you can also find out whether you're exempt. It's going to depend on state laws, and it may not be a bad idea to just assume that you're not going to be exempt. Your state government will have the information that you need about that. And finally, number nine, report the names of your new employees to your state. Report the names of the new employees to your state. Each state has a website to do this and each state requires this. And that's our quick list of paperwork. Now go and get it over with so you can get back to working in the dirt. Go you know? to ORG,
1: and then click our
2: resources. So if you haven't visited farmcommons.org, you really need to. There's a digital ton of information on farm employment law issues there. There are state-specific resources for many states. These include step-by-step guides, checklists, they cover the what-ifs. In fact, there's so many resources that Rachel suggests starting with two basic ones.
1: Then you can pick the workers and employees category and you'll get a big list of everything we've got on workers and employees. Scroll all the way down near the bottom and watch our two recorded webinars, Building a Legally Sound Intern and Volunteer Program for Farm Work and Making Employment Law Work for Your Farm. They're also available on our podcast channel so folks can listen to them while uh, while they're working. They're really great introductions to how this area of law works, and what the key legal issues are for farmers looking at um, employment law. So when farmers start with these broad-based materials, they'll get a better idea of where their individual risk might lie, and then they can go check for more specific materials that we have. That might be a tutorial specific to their state, it might be something specific to interns and volunteers if if they find that that's where their area of risk lies.
2: And if you'd like to read, and then Aaron, Farm Commons lead legal researcher, uh, has some uh, suggestions as well.
1: In addition to what Rachel said with respect to the webinars, we also have some really great print resources that provide a general perspective of the issues uh, for employment law. The print resource Making Employment Law Work for Your Farm. And we also have another great resource on um, classifying your workers, employees, interns, volunteers, and independent contractors. So that's going to help you really determine what your workers are in the eyes of the law.
2: We'll get to know Aaron a little better on our next episode. We have not and will not cover everything in these podcasts, and we aren't giving legal advice. Talk to an attorney if you have specific questions about your farming situation. This material is funded in partnership with the U.S. Department of Agriculture Risk Management Agency. Music comes courtesy of Huma Huma and Jason Shaw and Audionautics Music under a Creative Commons license. The Executive Director of Farm Commons is Rachel Armstrong. Our Lead Research Attorney is Aaron Hannum. And I'm Matt Stannard. Want to contact us? Visit farmcommons.org and click Contact.